get it. Monday, December 7th, 2020. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you had a good week outside of podcast land. By now, I hope you have either eaten or frozen those Thanksgiving leftovers. Uh, According to my wife, if it's still in the fridge today, they're no longer good. Couple ratings, no new reviews this week. If you like what we have put together every week, please consider smashing that subscribe button and leaving a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. In doing so, you'll be helping push this podcast up in the algorithms, giving more veterans the chance to catch the information provided not only in the interviews, but in the benefits breakdown episodes and in the news releases. Speaking of news releases, we have we have just have one this week. Uh, it says for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently dedicated a 269 acre national cemetery in Corfu, New York, 20 miles east of Buffalo, to provide for the first time a nearby VA burial option for over 77,000 veterans and their eligible family members. VA Secretary Robert Wilkie. Undersecretary for Memorial Affairs Randy Reeves, New York Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, and U.S. Representative Chris Jacobs all unveiled the dedication plaque for the Western New York National Cemetery. Construction of the initial phase of the cemetery is ongoing, with first interments expected to occur before the end of this year. With the addition of Western New York, the state currently has six open VA national cemeteries Woodlawn, Gerald B. H. Solomon, Saratoga, Calverton, Bath, and Long Island, while Cypress Hills National Cemetery in Brooklyn is closed to new interments. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the dedication ceremony was closed to the public and attendance was limited in accordance with federal CDC state and local guidelines and mandates. However, photos and video of the dedication can be found on the National Cemetery Administration's Facebook page. For more information, Contact Western New York National Cemetery Director James Metcalf II at 717-639-4644. And for more information on VA burial benefits or to apply for burial benefits in advance of need, you can visit VA's National Cemetery Administration's website at www.cem.va.gov or call 1-800-535-111. One seven. All right, so this upcoming weekend on this Sunday, December 13th, it will be the 17th anniversary of Operation Red Dawn, which was the operation that captured Saddam Hussein. A couple months ago in October, it was also the 27th anniversary of Black Hawk Down. One of the guests from this week's interview is an Army veteran that saw both those operations firsthand. He was in the Army for 25 years, 20 of those being in Delta Force. And I say one of this week's guests because he is joined by his spouse, who is an award-winning filmmaker and photographer in her own right. She's ran and embedded with SEAL teams, Green Berets, and Army Rangers during their training scenarios for weeks at a time. And it's been a while since we've had a veteran on with their spouse. I I don't think we've done that since Backpacks for Life, uh, way back in the archives. It was one of the first interviews I did. But much like Backpacks for Life, these two are a team. They are co-CEOs 
of the All Secure Foundation. And the foundation's mission is to assist special operations warriors and their families heal from the trauma of war. So, without further ado, I bring to you Army veteran Tom and his spouse, Jen Satterley. Enjoy. Welcome, Tom and Jen. Uh, is it is it Satterley? Yes. You got it. Perfect. Outstanding. Um, you know, I don't think we've had a couple on in over a year here on Born the Battle. Uh, I think it was back in episode 147, uh, Brett D'Alessandro and Alexa Modera of Back Backpacks for Life. But um, it seems like you two are glued at the hip, which is which is great. How did you two meet? Wow, that story. Um, you know, we are glued at the hip, and it's it's a, one of those things to where um, I jokingly up front called her like my my uh, my uh, my dog. You know, she's my uh, disability dog <laughs> kind of thing. But you know, in loving lovingly, of course, it's like I'd never go without her. And it's one of those things where we we talk about family. We talk about how the importance of family and. And how our, our actions don't match our words a lot of times. Like my family means the most thing, you know, in the world to me. Yet we constantly deploy and go away and train and, and, and they don't see us. But yeah, we met while training. <laughs> and, she, and, and she was asked, actually, I'll let her share that story, her half of it, about how she was asked to do this recording and videos for military. And she was turning it down repeatedly. Mm. I did. <laughs> I was not comfortable. I um, at the time I was doing advertising, marketing, film and photography in the commercial sector and had spent 12 years in that world. So working Talk, on, you're, you're talking my language, I'm combat camera. So, oh yeah. <laughs> so, well, I, it never even entered my mind and I was doing some sports marketing. I had worked a little with, um, St. Louis Cardinals and, and was working with Ironman triathletes. So I was asked to yeah. come on a special operation training mission you know, saying, Hey, um, you have experience shooting action. So, Hey, come in, shoot these realistic military training exercises. I said, no, the first three times. Cause I'm like, I don't know anything about special operations or military exercises. And you know, how is this no experience gonna go? whatsoever? None, zero. I mean, my dad was air force, but was out, um, before I was born, my brother was air force, but he left when I was 12. Yeah. So, um, of course, I had a very military supportive family and, you know, but I, I didn't know anything about special operations and um, ended up going on getting talked into it. Actually, the guy told me, you don't ever have to go back if you don't want to. But I already told him you're coming on this first mission. So you have to go. And uh, this guy is a former. I hear that. I hear that. Oh, shoot. Oh, hang on one second. No worries. Sorry. Our house alarm's going off. Okay. We were, we were cooking eggs still, so we're done ah, cooking. We're done crap. cooking eggs. Um, oh, crap! Crisis averted. <laughs> the part I just cut out was uh, was a uh, was about a good minute or two of the uh, the fire alarm going. So that was kind of that was hilarious. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's not the house alarm. Something's on fire. <laughs> hilarious. Um, okay, so we were talking about how you two met, Jen. You were embedded, and your your boss told you that. Uh, you know, you, you have to go on this one. You, you, I've already told them. Yes. So I went and ended up absolutely loving the experience. I felt like um, I always wanted to be a National Geographic photographer. Mm. And I thought, hey, this is the closest I'm going to get. You know, I'm 38 at the time and um, 
just got to see underneath the curtain and it was really an amazing experience. Gotcha. Now, how long ago did you two meet? That was 2013. 2013. So, okay. So seven years. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I'm Tom, I'm going to go a little bit further than seven years. Uh, back to when you first decided to enter the army, when and where was that? And why did you do it? Yeah. Another, another whim in my life. Uh, my, one of my best friends in high school had joined the army and gone off to basic training and I was in Columbus, Indiana and I was, uh, going to college and blowing my parents' money and had come back and was building, working for a construction company, building houses. I love to do that. And hmm. he had asked me, I'm going to, I'm going to train you to take over my business. I'm working with all these older contractors, you know, and I'm here, I'm this young high school kid. And, and it was a real quick turnoff. I mean, owning my own company sounded great, you know, when you're 18, but I looked at who I would be in charge of. And I was like, that's me. That's going to be me. You know, I can't do this. I got to do something else. And I was kind of bored. So my friend comes back from basic training and we're going to a concert one night and he's telling me all about it. It's great. You know, you run around, you get to shoot guns. I'm going to Germany for a couple of years. I'm like, that's cool. You know, he's like, you should do it. So in that hour long drive from Columbus, Indiana to Indianapolis, Indiana, to go to a John Cougar concert, I decided to join the army and we got to Indianapolis and I ended up going to a recruiting station and, um, you know, I was like, I want to be a medic or I want to do this or that. And he's like, do you like to blow stuff up? So he taught me into being a combat engineer. <laughs> and I'm sure that's what they needed at the time. And so I signed up for that and uh, went home after the concert, told my parents I joined the Army. And they were like, what? They're freaking out. And uh, and so I packed up, went to basic training. That was the summer of 85. The fall of 85, I went to the Army in February of 86. Okay. And I was going to go in for four years, get college money and get out. And I don't know what happened. I blinked and, uh, you know, somebody asked me, do you want to reenlist it, you know, for a bonus at 19 years? And I'm like, uh, sure, I'll do another six years. <laughs> that was one of those things where you make that decision, you get that check and, and you put it in the bank and then you're like, oh, what have I done? <laughs> another six years. You know? Now, you ended up doing 25, uh, 20 of them in Delta Force. Um, if you're listening to the intro, if you have listened to the intro, uh, you now know that Tom has been in some of the most visible, I would say visible military missions out there. Um, first one I want to talk about Tom is, is the battle of Mogadishu, uh, at the time of this interview, and we're coming right up on the anniversary of the battle. It's a uh, 20, 27, right? 27th anniversary. Right? Oh, wow. You're going to make me do math, nine, aren't you? 93. <laughs> I think I got yeah. it right. Uh, math, yes. Marine. math for Marines. That, 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 that MCI worked. Okay. The Battle of Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down. Uh, you had to have been a young buck at the time. Uh, run me through your experience on on that mission back back then. Yeah, that was uh, that was the mission that was different from the rest. It was uh, all the other missions. Is, it was what I thought combat was. You know, the excitement, the fear, the good guys win. Um nobody really gets killed or, or, you know, injured hard. And then three October happened and it was, um, you're thrust into, I mean, fear. I was terrified. However, I just kept operating, doing my SOPs, breaking down everything that we were supposed to do. Mm. And so it looks like you're not afraid, you know, we jumped off the helicopter on days and ran right towards a, you know, a, a bunker or a, a position with a machine gun at it. Yeah. At once, and everybody's like, "Man, you guys were crazy." I'm like, "I didn't even think about it." You know, like it, they teach you to assault a near ambush, you know, right? So I just did it, and they're like, "Well, that was kind of a far one, so you don't really do that." That was a long alleyway you were running down, but you know, bravery, but 
poor, poor judgment at the time. And it was like, well, I, I just, you just do what you kind of got to do at the time. And yeah. And, uh, it, I did it for the guys to the left and my right, the, the, the chaos and everything that, that you see in the movie, a black hawk down, if you've seen it. Yeah. That's where I learned a lot about the movie or a lot about the battle that night, because you see your position, you see what you're doing. And that's kind of your, your limitation for the evening. And then when everybody puts that story together, you're like, Oh, I didn't even know that happened. It's a, it's a unique uh, experience that a lot of elements were, were working in tandem. You know, you had Rangers, Delta force, uh, you know, the trucks, the Humvees. Um, what was Delta forces primary mission during that, during that operation? We were going to go in and, and kill or capture a bunch of Adid's lieutenants and hopefully Adid. Um, yeah. We had gotten a, a signal that they were having a high-level meeting. We waited for it and, you know, sitting on the helicopters and got the signal that they were there. So we launched and and just up on infill, everything was different. The brownout was was so thick that the helicopters got pushed outside of the uh, security perimeter. We were already taking RPG fire on infill and it was near the Bakar market wow. where they sold all the weapons on the black market. As well as years later, we found out it was very close to an Al-Qaeda training facility to where they were training the militia on how to take down helicopters more efficiently. Yeah. So on that that evening, that afternoon, turning into that night and, you know, 18 hours was was a lot of those Al-Qaeda recruits. You know, when Americans fought Al-Qaeda for the first time and didn't really know it for years later. But um, the volume was so great was so unexpected that it was just, I felt like I was on my heels all night. I didn't know we were fighting Al-Qaeda out there. Yeah. I, and nobody did until years <laughs> later. And it was like, wow. So that was the first wow. groups of Al-Qaeda being trained. Interesting. In Somalia. And that was our, that was our introduction to them. And we wouldn't know it for years. Gotcha. Sorry. Uh, go ahead and continue. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's okay. And it yeah. was just one of those long nights of, of, I can't believe that happened, uh, you know, of turning the corner. After the after the initial mission went down and, you know, we, we I think, detained about 12 or, or some odd uh, adults and threw them in the back of a five ton. And then the, the convoy was supposed to load us all up and drive out, but helicopters got shot down. And, and I actually watched one of them get shot down and crash off to our northeast. And huh. and that's the one that we decided, you know, we had to go and, and, and circle and, and secure. So it was one of those. I knew the mission had changed. I didn't know for how long. I didn't really consider it. You just did what you were told. And I was young. I wasn't in charge of much. You know, I was running around shooting at things and breaking stuff. So not having responsibility takes a lot off of your plate. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I found out years later, it takes a lot out of your soul as well. You know, those leaders are making decisions, not just for themselves, but others. I was just making decisions kind of for myself. Yeah. And so that, that part was easier on me internally, but the loss of life, once you start seeing your friends go down, um, you, you lose that sense of invincibility and you, and the reality sets in like, wow, okay, this is not, um, I hate to say a video game. That's not what I was used to back then, but this is not a training scenario. This is not, um, the good guys always win. This is a lot of luck involved. You know, there's a lot of training involved in skill, but there's also a lot of luck when you have guys running around with bullet holes in their clothes and their gloves, and they just got missed by inches. Jeez. It, it, you start thinking about, wow, um, you know, you see women and, and children shooting at your friends, and it's just the whole concept of battle and what battle is changed instantly for me on the ground, and I was adapting and adjusting the entire night. Understood. Now you talked about, you did see a, a part that was portrayed in the film, uh, 
Now, were you personally portrayed in the film or was it, was there just more events that, that were in the film that you, you remember? There were events in the film that, that I had done that yeah. it was told from a range perspective since the unit didn't do a lot of um, input for the movie. There was a couple of people that, that were out that could and did. Um, but they're only telling the stories that they saw as well. And I, I think some of the stories that you see in the movie that, that I did, either a lot of people did that during the night or that was told from a different perspective of Ranger doing something that I had done. You'll see things in the movie where, where, where Ranger does something that you know a unit member did, but it was told from a Ranger perspective. So they were trying to get the story out, but only with, uh, with the people that they could get it out with. Absolutely. Totally makes sense. Um, now I want to move on to that, that second mission, uh, that I kind of alluded to now, as you got older, you started leading these tier one missions, uh, including operation red Dawn to capture Saddam Hussein. Walk me through, walk, walk me through your experience on that one. That was a, a lot of months of different squadrons trying to hunt down the same person. It, it got to the point of chasing Elvis, right? I mean, everybody thinks he's here, but he's not, you know? And so it's, it's one of those jokes where I went on so many hits looking for guys that knew where you know Saddam was or or his his key handlers and you got the agency chasing one line of, of family members, our intel's chasing another line of family members. So nobody really knows honestly where he is or who's hiding him because he was so secretive about it. And luckily our intel guy took the right family line. Uh, and uh, we got word one night. I mean, after months and months of chasing and, and going on hits that you know, didn't lead anywhere. One night that year, we got a, and this was just after President Bush had visited and my troop was, I was in charge of the security for, for President Bush's visit to um, Iraq on Thanksgiving. And he had asked me before he went out on stage after he landed is, uh, you know, Hey, are we going to get him? <laughs> did you did we get him yet? I'm like, well, not, <laughs> not, yeah, it was funny the way he did it. I was like, well, not yet, sir, but wouldn't that be a nice Christmas present? He goes, yeah, that'd be nice. I got to go talk to these boys. And he walks out and he starts talking to everybody in the mess hall on, uh, at the international airport there in Baghdad. Yeah. And I stood there thinking, oh, man, what did I just say? <laughs> I think I just promised the president that I'd deliver Saddam Hussein by December. You're, you're completely overthinking of what you said. <laughs> I know, right? Immediately, as soon as you say something to the president of the United States, you're like, uh, okay, I hope he forgot that. You know, I hope he, I hope he forgets what I just said to him as I was, you know, just passing the time. Meanwhile, it's probably in one ear, out the other for him. Right. You know? There's you know, too and, much going into a head like that. So yeah, yeah. one night we got a we got an intel hit on a guy coming down from the north, from the Decret area. They thought it was one of Saddam's handlers. He's going to be in a house in north northern Baghdad. And I took my troop and we launched out to do the hit like any other night, rolling down the street and noticing a, a guy walking up the, up the sidewalk and entering another building. And I, I just took note of it. And we went and we took down the house. There was nothing really important there. Yeah. And uh, we started taking fire from across the field, you know, further north. And it was kind of odd that they would shoot at us with our vehicles and there was no reason to shoot at us. And I thought maybe they're trying to drag us away or pull us away. And uh, I sent a team down to the house. I was like, hey, there was a guy walking down the street from this direction. I don't know. So they went down to the house and cleared it and found him underneath a mattress with a, a plastic AK-47. Plastic. Yeah, like a toy. And they almost shot him. And had they shot him, it might have been the end of that search, obviously. But didn't shoot him, detained him, brought him back. And he didn't give us anything on, you know, at the time. So I, I turned him into the big boys and they flew him up to Balad. And I'd say probably four to six hours later, as, as we're trying to catch some sleep, 
I get, I get shaken, you know, they're shaking me awake. Hey, Tom, we got to start planning. We got to Saddam. And I go again, really? No, that guy you caught, he really knows where Saddam is. Like I've heard this a thousand times, you know, I'm not waking my guys up for this. So I get up and I start planning a little bit and it starts to look real. I mean, it's starting to get exciting. So I wake the team leaders up. It's getting more exciting. So we wake uh, all the guys up and let them take part of the planning and then work out this entire plan with our other element that's living up at Decrit. And there's two different targets. There's the, the little farm, the fish farm, and then there's a, a house in the middle of the town. And of course the other the other troop got to pick the location since they were they were living in Tikrit, you know. Mm. So they got to pick the location. They picked the the farm, the fish farm. And they sent us to the house in the middle of the town. I thought, great. I always get the most dangerous missions, right? The one in the middle of the town. <laughs> Another Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, send 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 my troop there, you know. And he's uh, got experience. He went he was in Mo- <laughs> he was in he was in Bukhara market. He's not bad. He knows what's up. So we go in there and it goes down without a hitch. There's a, seems like a 90 year old guy in there. He's the cook. He's the chef for Saddam Hussein. And there's, I don't know how much fish is, fish is in the freezer. And he's telling me, I don't know Saddam. I don't know, no, no, no. You know? And I'm like, well, why is there so much fish, fish in the freezer? And then you could see his face change. <laughs> and so I knew it. And then his, and he starts faking a heart attack and he starts faking like his wife's dying. All his kids are dying. I'm like, you know, I told him to keep that guy alive. I'm going to put him on the front of the vehicle. And he's going to point out where Saddam is. I'm going to drive there. So I'm trying to call on the radio and tell my boss, you know, and there's just radio silence. And then they send me return to base. And I'm like, no, no, no. I know I got the position. I know. No, return to base. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm screaming. So we returned to base and come to find out the place he was going to take us. You know, the other troop was already there and had done their, their deed and pulled him out of the hole. And, and we got back to the, the palace in Decrit and I'm fuming. And my sergeant major is like, come on over here. Come over. I want to calm you down a little bit. And, I, and he opens the door and we walk in and there sits, you know, the president of Iraq in a chair, just looking like dirty Uncle Fester with leaves in his beard and <laughs> stuff hanging out of his hair. Why, why were you furious? Because I didn't know they had captured him yet because it was they, they weren't going to put that out on the radio. And I just oh. knew I knew I had the location. This old guy was going to take me there and I believed him and I knew and he was going to take me to that farm. Okay, and uh, they had already they had already started exfilling with him yeah. at the time. Gotcha. And I was like, "You don't understand. I know the location." They're like, "Negative RTB." I'm like, "You got to be kidding me, man! This has got to be the worst organization ever." <laughs> <laughs> so we get in there. He's like dragging me over and sh- opens the door and shows me. I'm like, oh, "Okay." He goes, "You happy now?" And I go, "Yeah." I go, "But he looks like Dirty Uncle Fester," and that's he jumps up and spits on me. And uh, oh wow! And I just looked at him. I'm like, man. I'd really love to knock you out right now, but that's okay. You'll be dead soon. And I just walked out the door and uh, another 10 minutes later, they come parading him by and put him on the helicopter and off he goes to, to his fate. But I remember riding back in the vehicle back to Baghdad that night with my, with my Sergeant major. And he's just smiling, smiling. I'm like, why are you so happy? He goes, I no longer have a a retention issue. (laughs) You know, this war had been going on for a while. We've been looking for Saddam Hussein and, and, you know, everybody thinks you get the leader. It's over sometimes. And yeah, he goes, though, I know this is just a, a small victory. At least, at least it excites people and people don't get burnt out on the war. They, they actually completed a large mission that we were going for. And that was his, that was his uh, worry was retention. <laughs> you know? Interesting. Yeah. When you saw Saddam in that chair, did, did your president, did the, did the conversation with the president, did that go back to your, did you go back to that or go, all right. It, it didn't, it, it didn't until um, they had some weapons and they, they had a pistol they were going to give him as a gift. And I was like, oh yeah, maybe make it a Christmas gift because <laughs> I kind of told him we might have him by Christmas. And since we got him on the 13th or it was like, well, 
I made it. You know, I wanted to write him a letter. And I actually, my wife and I wrote him a letter uh, last year. Outstanding. And he, and, he, and he wrote us back. And I was like thanking him for everything and, and joking about that night. Wow. That's that's incredible. I mean, I've heard that about, about old Bush there. He writes people back. That's pretty cool. He's he's pretty cool. If you can get his number from somebody, I mean, that's the hard part is knowing somebody. And luckily, I was telling a story to somebody who who's a donor of ours for a foundation, and yeah. I was telling him this story. And then he and you know, I was like, man, if I could just get his number, the way he paints, you know, for PTS and and all that, I would love to just share this story and thank him for everything. And he hands he hands over his personal assistance number, and I'm like, whoa, what? <laughs> he goes, well, why'd you tell that story? I go, I've told that story a hundred times. No one's handed me the contact information for the president. <laughs> he goes, well, today's your day. Ask yourself why you tell stories then if you don't want results. And I go, well, thank you. And so we wrote him. Um, after a while, we kind of sat on it for a while, like, okay, yeah, let's not be those people that just write. So, you know, thoughtful letter. And we wrote to him and his wife. And uh, yeah, they wrote thoughtful letter back and thanked us and, and uh, then asked us not to share it on social media as my wife's taking a picture of it. I'm going to post this. This is amazing. And I go, there's a little card in here that says, do not share this. It's, you know, it's not an endorsement or I'm like, oh, that's it. Yeah. No, that's outstanding though. That is outstanding. Um, also, I read in your bio, uh, you attended German Ranger School. That seems like a very, very unique piece of training. Yeah, it was called Einzelkampfer, like a one-man army, I think it stands for. It was uh, – they had one slot and there was like um, almost a thousand people in our, in our brigade that, uh, that tried out for that one slot. And I, and I was lucky enough to make it and they sent, they, they opened up another slot and sent an interpreter with me because nobody spoke, you know, English other than I, and I didn't speak German. Yeah. And uh, so he went and he failed out and probably the first week. So the rest of German Ranger school for me was miserable. Um, you know, you try to crack jokes to pass the time. I'd sit there and tell a joke, and these Germans just look at me, and like start, you know, smoking cigarettes, and like, uh -huh. I'm like, oh, that's okay, guys. I'm going to go over here and start polishing my boots. I'll be crying. Don't worry about it. You know, it's just, it was relentless. There was no, no break. Yeah. You know, the guy would give instructions, blah, 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 blah. and then everybody would take off running, and I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> and he looks at me, he's like, hide, no find. 20 minutes. I'm like, uh, shit. I took off running. Like, okay, I got to hide somewhere and nobody can find me, you know? And I, I got 20 minutes and I am climbing to the bottom of this big, huge brush pile. And I fell asleep. And I, I think I woke up two and a half hours later with them screaming my name and air horns and dogs trying to find me Wow! poking sticks in this pile of brush. And I finally come crawling out and they're like, okay, you pass. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, but, but you're late, you know? So I was like, well, I was asleep. Sorry. It was one of those long schools of just no connection, really no connection with, with um, a lot of humans, except the instructors who spoke broken English and just liked to mess with me. <laughs> what is, uh, is there, was there something that you pulled out of that training that was unique to them and, and that you were able to apply? Mm, no, nothing that was unique to them. I, I pulled out a lot of being able to hang out on my own, okay. um, be self-reliant, rely on just you know, my own inner thoughts and jokes to keep me sane as opposed yeah. to, you know, and then learning how to work with people without having any communication skills whatsoever, just kind mm. of watching and pantomiming and, you know, here you go, I'm going to do this and hand, hand gestures and, and you get it done. And, and, and in the end we were kind of working together side by side without even speaking. Yeah. 
and I kind of knew what was going on. So that was interesting for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Jen, going to come back to you for a sec. Being that this is a veteran story centric podcast, I hardly ever get to, and I enjoy it when, when I get a spouse uh, here for an interview in the interview chair right next to their significant other. Um, you know, Tom was in a role where he was gone a lot. Now, you, you said you came in in 2013. Was he still in, in at 20, in 2013? He was not. He was not. No, he was already out. Um, he was still doing special operations training. So, you know, I think right after we met, he was still going overseas, um, still traveling all the time. Sure. But yeah, he was not active anymore. I I retired uh, December 2010. And and she she most humbly talks like I wasn't a military wife. I'm a veteran spouse. However, I know she's seen more than most being embedded with special operations, videoing, watching the watching the hits go down for three years watching these guys cry and go get killed and not come back um yeah that's what started her her path of her her warrior path okay well looking through that lens jen pun intended um (laughs) what what do you think is the biggest challenge for a military spouse i would say that the biggest challenge that i see um, and that I hear about, I talk to hundreds and hundreds of spouses as well, is that there's a disconnection, obviously, that happens in deployment. And there's very little training or planning for that. And it sounds silly, but really disconnection in a relationship is what crushes a relationship. Mm-hmm. So when you don't have a plan to say goodbye and say hello, and even plans for why you're deployed, Resentment builds. Um, a lot of military members feel like they can't or don't want to share stories from overseas back at home. Yeah. So I hear a lot of resentment too. Like, hey, my, you know, this is my spouse's biggest part of his or her life is is this military um, job and family, and I don't feel part of it. I feel excluded from it. And so I know that's a huge challenge. We, yeah. As as a spouse, you're like, I, we should be able to share everything with each other. This is the reason that we were married. Yeah, especially the biggest part. <laughs> I don't know how you mitigate that. You know, it's very hard for veterans to talk about a lot of their experiences because they don't think that their their spouse would understand it. You know. Oh yeah, and, and we hear that a lot. Is we do we hear that so much? And I tell them, I say, look, a lot of we, we've got different styles and types of, of people out there. We got the ones that want to be special, yeah, and so they don't tell what they're doing, so it seems secretive, and they don't realize what they're doing with that. Right when you yeah. when you're secretive. The other person's mind builds up that secret. What is it? It's worse often. It probably really is, you know? <laughs> yeah. Usually. And you got the ones that come back and they wouldn't understand. I don't want to bring them the horror. And then you have the other ones that just come back and tell them everything. And I, I say, you come home and you share what you need to share. You, you share your, your story with them. You don't tell them about the blood and the guts or you tell them the level that they can understand, but they know something's wrong. They they're If they're connected to you, there's you don't need words to have that feelings and emotions. So you need to share what's going on. When I ask my wife, you know, we all ask our partners, hey, hey, what's going on when we see something? We see their face different, their eyes are different, or they're just slumped a little. Hey, what's going on? And they tell us, oh, nothing. You know that's wrong, right? You know that's a lie. Yeah. And, and I told my wife one time, I go, I asked her, hey, what's going on? No, I'm okay. And I go, look, you're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now, you're really screwing up my radar because my radar says something's wrong. And that's how I want to stay connected to you. And when you say nothing, 
then it's screwing up my radar. So if I'm correct and something's wrong, but you don't want to talk about it, please say that. Yeah. And, and so we, we share with everybody, just be honest about, I don't want to share certain parts, but I, but I do need to talk about how it made me feel. Um, I don't need to tell you all the secrets if there are any, but I don't need to act like there are any secrets, but the communication and awareness piece that we bring up to people is what's, what's key and what saved and helped me and many others is awareness of self and what bothers me, awareness of our relationship and our connection and the honesty and then the communication. And, and a lot of guys tell us, we don't, I don't have those tools. I don't know how to be a civilian. I don't know. I'm like, you have every tool on the planet. You've planned, you got primary, alternate, contingency, emergency plans. You've overplanned. You've done things in your life and you've, you've traveled around the world. You had to plan all that. So plan your relationship. You just don't apply it to your relationship. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, while you were in, and we asked this question on every episode of Born the Battle, while you were in, give me either your best friend or your greatest mentor. Hmm. I would say my greatest mentor was Scotty Miller. He's, he's, uh, he's now a general, you know, probably living in, living yeah, in little, Afghanistan for years. A little general, um, you know, but not doing much with his career. He came in right after I did to the unit and learned so much. I remember him in Somalia taking over from General Sakalik, um, then Colonel Sakalik. Colonel Sakalik was there for all of the missions except 3 October. Um, his father had died, so he had to go home. Oh, wow. And then General, General Miller, who was ops, I believe, at the time, waiting a slot to be a troop commander, um, got thrust into it. And on 3 October, I remember him standing in the courtyard and asking, "Was it? Is it always like this? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't think I laugh, but I go, no, no, it's definitely not always like this. He goes, okay, just check it. What did, what did, he, what did he teach you? Patience, um, thinking through before you answer questions. If, if you ask General Miller a question, you'll see him pause and, and thoughtfully process. And he'll start to talk if he knows something right off the bat, but he's formulating his answer. He doesn't rush anything. He doesn't need to impress anybody with how fast he can speak and answer. Yeah. Um, I think he proved that when he took over the war in Afghanistan and was asked, um, what's the end date? What end date are you shooting for? He said, I'm never going to give you an end date. People always give you end dates and it's never been right. I'm not going to give you an end date and predict something that's so unpredictable. Yeah. Most people tell you those answers like, oh, one year we're out of here, you know, and, and it never works out that way. No, no. So he's, he's just kind of honest um, that that smooth, calm presence in, in uh, all the chaos. Very good. And I've always tried to be that for my, for my guys. Very good. Very good. General Miller. Very good. So you got out after 25 years in 2010. Why 25 years? And what was it like getting out? Cause that was probably what, right in the middle of the recession. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, I getting out for me was, was bittersweet, obviously. And I, I think you'll hear that from a lot of people. When I got out, I couldn't get out quick enough. I was so done. I was burnt out. I mean, you, you know, you're done well before you know you're done. Oh yeah. So, so when you realize it, it's your way gone. And I, I was gone. I was in the, getting divorced. You know, I didn't know who my son was. Um, I was drinking. I was miserable. I didn't have plans for a future. And I, the day I got out, I had, I didn't have a job. Seven days later, or I think 10 days later, I was flying over to Amman, Jordan, where I would live for a couple of years. 
And I was training the Jordanian army to be special forces qualified. And I was running programs over there. So I was doing what I always did and I was making more money and I was having a great time. Yet I still wasn't home ever. Yeah. You, you said you just mentioned you didn't know your you didn't know your son. Yeah, I just I just kept doing what I knew. I mean, I, I was on autopilot. I was afraid to do anything different because I'd screw it up. Yeah. And when that work dried up and went away, um, I came back and I, I would I'd lay in bed all day and watch TV, you know, all night and sleep all day. And I, I ate like crap. I just I didn't know what to do. And so I started just tanking into the point of despair and um, loss of tribe. And and I just felt like a burden to society. And I started doing contract work and that would carry me over from time to time. And you'd see some friends and talk, but I was still going down in that hole up until I guess about seven years ago. Um, I almost took my own life and it was just in a blink of an eye when two friends and a, and a stranger kind of got out of a car that I was driving in a parking garage. And I lied to him and told him I had a phone call, I'll catch up with them later. And, uh, you know, they walked away from the car and I put a bullet in my chamber and I sat there thinking, you know, two things. I feel sorry for the rental car company and I hope I don't screw this up. And the person that I didn't know started texting me over and over and over again. And finally, you know, I stopped what I was doing and, and picked up the phone. And I don't know how many texts were on there. And the last one I read was you're late. And when I saw you're late, I snapped back into having a mission and I cleared my weapon put in my bag and went back down and met everybody. And, and I didn't tell them what I had done for two or three months. I don't know, maybe longer. And I ended up marrying that person that texted me that, that paid attention to me and, um, and, and saved my life that day. It was one of those, uh, you don't know this, but a couple months ago you saved my life. And she was like, no way. What? And then that burden, I think that power, that burden, that fear struck her and she put it together with all of the, loss of life and the special oper operations trainings that we, we did for years after that together. Yeah. Um, and said, we need to help these people after deployments. We don't need to send them off to war the best possible train that they can. Somebody's got that already. We need to catch them when they come home and help them and their families. Yeah. You know, I, I, I haven't heard your speak. I haven't heard you speak, uh, or, uh, you know, admittedly I haven't read your book, but from some of the blogs and I've read them on the all secure foundations website. Um, you know, your foundation that you, you both are, are co-CEOs. Um, you seem to be very open about your post-traumatic stress. I am. And up until yesterday, I'll be honest, up until yesterday, I've been terrified about how open I've been. The judgment, my wife has a book coming out February 16th. I screw this up every time I look at her like, don't hit me. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like mine, but the wife's side. The, 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 here's what happens to us side. And it's very open, you know, about what I did, what, what she did, what, and just like my book was, and I've been terrified about it. You get a lot of judgment. You know, you did this. Oh, you're judged. You go, oh, you cheated. You get judged. Oh, you drink too much. You get judged. I'm like, you know what? Fine. I don't care if you judge me because leaders lead, um, leaders get out on the dance floor first. And so after my wife smacked me about the head for a couple of months, I decided to write the book. And every time somebody reads the book, I, I see a post, Hey, this isn't your normal chest thumping military book. <laughs> this yeah. guy's talking about how he screwed everything up and how it almost took his own life. And I, I wanted to do that for all the real people out there who you don't hear about. 
the ones that just kill themselves, the strong, silent ones that just, they don't whine. They just decide one day they're going to do it. And I was tired of that. And I want them to know that everybody's feeling that way. Most people are feeling that way. People screw up. They go through the shame cycle. They feel worthless. They feel like they're a burden. You know, I've ruined my children's lives. So many friends, I hear that all the time. And until yesterday, when one of my close friends, we talked for over an hour on the phone, hadn't talked that long in years. He was in Somalia as well. I mean, he was a squadron sergeant major as well. He went through um, hell as well. And he's opening up. He's like, you know, Tom, just I finally, it's honesty. It's just being truthful to yourself about how you're feeling and quit the bravado and putting the wall up. And I go, oh my God, T, finally, you know, you finally got it. You finally heard me. And he goes, I read your book and he kept referencing my book. And I'm thinking it's working. You know, it's working. The, the the guys that call me and talk to me are like, I read your book and if you can do it, I can do it. And if you went through it, then it's normal to go through it. I'm like, hey, if that's what works for you, I'm glad it's working. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, being that honest and open, you're also telling others that it's okay to talk about it. And you're also showing a way to, was it, was it cathartic for you to write that book? So much. I cried so much. Um, I, I read it for the audible version too. And that was very, very difficult after writing it to have to vocalize it out loud in front of people in a studio. Um, and then try to hold it in. <laughs> Even though I tell people, let it go. You know, you're around people you don't know. You try to hold it in. You can't. Yeah. It was so cathartic, so healing. And so, um, and it helped me remember things along the way that I'd forgotten. And so I could start working on that and start dealing with those other things that I, you know, and then others that see it, you know, they follow it. And, uh, and if it's okay for other people to do it, you know, this is a dance floor thing. Two people get out there, they might dance for a little bit, but there's always a third and then a fourth and then a crowd and then everybody's on the dance floor because it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Now you said your wife helped you get, get through to, 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 to write it. I mean, uh, you know, like I said, you're, you're, you're coming from Delta Force. You're not, uh, you know, as far as a, a university academic, um, what, how did you, how was, how was the process of writing? How did it, how was it for you? How did, how were you able to work through that? Had a co-author, um, Steve Jackson. He's amazing. Um, yeah, I would write down some, some stuff and then I would talk to him either on phone or face-to-face -face visits, or I would, I would write some stuff down emails or I would write a chapter myself and then he would take it and fix it, you know? And so he would frame kind of the whole story. Outstanding. Uh, and then we would start working on chapters of that story. And then he would start moving them about instead of like, the beginning to the end, it went from the beginning to, oh, by the way, flash the end and go back and then forth and kind of like a movie. And, and, I, and I liked the way it was going because I don't I didn't read that much before this. Yeah. And uh, the process kind of turned me on to reading a little more. And it was it was kind of enjoyable for me to see the process work and to get it out and watch him clean up a story and make it better. You know, he has, he has his vocabulary is a lot larger than mine, so he can clean it up and exactly. throw some words in there that I ended up Googling going, what's that word again? I don't have to use the same word over and over again. It was great. It was really great. Yeah. And, uh, it was a great time. And, and, Outstanding. Uh, so, yes. It was. <laughs> yeah. So he kind of fixed it up and, uh, and really helped tell the story. That's good to know because, you know, we've had authors um, on the on the podcast before. G. Michael Hoff, best-selling Amazon author. Dale Dye has written books. 
Uh, Jeff Struker is, you know, he he wrote his auto and biography, and he also writes fiction. But I think you're the first person that I've I've talked to that's actually like, okay, I I am not an author by trade, so I helped I was helped with another author, and that's good to know for those that because there's so many stories out there that need that can that can be told, need to be told, and it's good to know that there are other ways to tell them. If you're like, hey, I'm not a professional writer, yeah. but you can still get it. You can still get it done. Absolutely. Yeah, I had four guys from the unit after that hit me up, you know, after the other guys hit me up, like, you're writing a book, you idiot. What are you, a seal, Bob? I'm like, thanks, guys. And then <laughs> <laughs> you don't even, know what the love. Of, don't even know what it's about and you're already attacking me. I get it. Um, you know, I, I literally went through the unit with Intel yeah. the entire time, got the book approved. The unit was the first ones to read the book. They read it twice, sent it out. It was okay. Got it published. So I was, I'm no way worried about anything. Um, but Lots of guys hit me up about, hey, how'd you write that book? I got a group of four of us want to write a book. Another, another, another day, hey, where I want to write a book, I'm, I'm writing a book. I just don't know how to market it. And I'm here, here, hit this guy up, hit this guy up. You don't need to know how to write. You don't even know how to storytell. Just talk, talk in your recorder, talk on the phone, talk to somebody who knows how to write. That's that's their job, you know. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, now, Jen, it sounds like you, you've you've been with Tom through a a a part of his transition since he got out and, and, a, and a very, I mean, he talked, he just gave a testimony about how it was a very uh, difficult time that you helped him with. How did you handle this time in your marriage? It was tough. Um, we, <laughs> we joke that, um, we kind of started off backwards, you know, like a lot of people kind of get to this place. If the honeymoon phase is a number one and you're signing divorce papers at a 10, we worked our way from a 10 back down to, to a one now. So we started off divorced. Was, yeah. yeah this started out divorced. That, that first year, Hey, that was my marriage too. That first year was the roughest one. Oh my gosh. I, yeah. we, after our first, so the first two years that we were together, we lived in separate States. We pretty much only saw each other when we were training. Um, sometimes I would be on an iteration for 20 days. So, you know, I, I would see Tom often, but, you know, it went from that to him moving to St. Louis uh, with his 16 year old son. Yeah. And all of a sudden we're like, boom, you know, I had a second and fifth grader at the time. And yeah, that was smooth, too. You know, yeah. I think I, I talked <laughs> wow. to a stepmom yesterday and she said, <laughs> nobody tells you how tough it's going to, you know, it is as a step parent. Like and I said, I don't think anybody can prepare you for it. I think you just have to walk through it. Yeah. So it it was definitely challenging. Tom was in a he was in the same space that he was in service where, you know, he he didn't feel that he could talk about PTS. In fact, he went to anger management therapy first. And, you know, the guy was phenomenal. He was Eric Clapton's therapist. Um, <laughs> no, wow. Yeah. Not the best. <laughs> yeah. It's this guy in Savannah. I mean, he, Tom didn't even know that until he went and saw this guy, but he was phenomenal. And he told Tom, you're not an alcoholic. Tom's like thinking I'm an alcoholic. I drink every day. And he said, you're not an alcoholic and you're, you don't have anger issues. You have PTS. And these are the symptoms of PTS. And that was really the first time somebody broke it down and explained it to us. And I'll never forget Tom coming home from that appointment and calling me in the the relief in his voice, the, I mean, he was almost giddy about it, like to have something to call what he was feeling. And yeah. 
to name it was really powerful. And then we could get to work once we kind of knew what it was. Very good. Um, now, Tom, you said uh, with this, did you use like VA community care to find this therapist or was this on your own or have you used VA services before? I have not. This was all on my own. Um, mm. Kind of forced. I ended up, you know, you, you end up drinking. I ended up getting a DUI and that DUI was like, you need to attend some kind of therapy. And I'm like, uh, well, I've already attended road rage therapy. So let's, let's try anger management. And when I did that, it opened up the door to something really, really is wrong with me. Um, it's not just, I need to fix and spot fix. I need to, you know, cure this cancer. It's not like I have a boil on my arm from cancer or something. I need to take care of the boil. Right. That's, that's really not what I needed to do. I didn't need to fix the the symptoms. So it was eye awakening for me. And I was happy because I had something to work on again versus an unknown thing. And I would say even as a veteran at that time, I wasn't even a veteran spouse. I was a a girlfriend at the time when, you know, I really started helping him research. Um, and I didn't have any military help in that area as you know, someone on the outside, I, I didn't even really know what the VA offered or, or what they did. Um, and it sounds silly now, but at the time, I was just Google searching, you know, anger management, problem drinking. You don't know unless you're actually starting to find that information or right. that information. Like there's no reason to go to the VA if you're not even a veteran spouse or, or you know, so that makes total sense. And I, and I tell people for years and they would complain, the VA doesn't, the VA doesn't. I go, you're just regurgitating information. If you haven't been there, then you're not, you know, you're not taking your own experiences. I've never had an issue with the VA and I tell people. You know, it's one of the largest organizations on the planet. You might have to wait in line a little bit, <laughs> yeah. right? There's a lot of people waiting in line to get free care. And that that really, really puts a back order on things. And and so they don't understand the process. They just understand that I didn't get seen right away today or something. Um, and there's always other avenues out there. People stop at the first shut door. Hmm. Um, like with therapy, we say the same thing. Um, we're, we went through five therapists before we found one that was amazing, you know? And, uh, that's important to know that you had to go through five. Yeah. People are like, Hey, I, I, I've gone to therapists and they suck. I, I'm not going to therapists unless they've been to combat. Oh, really? You know, well then should a therapy therapist not see you unless you've been to you know school and you got your PhD because <laughs> people have their jobs that they do. Yeah. You trust them to do their job. And it's, it's not that you need to go to combat to understand what combat makes you feel like. You need to understand how to help people that feel that way. Yeah. And so I try to tell them, you know, they don't shut the door on the first negative thing you hear. Don't regurgitate negative information you hear when you haven't experienced it yourself. Yeah. No, I uh, I completely shut the door on my first experience with the VA. And I, I've shared it on the podcast before. Is I ran into a, a physical therapist. I, I, I have shoulder issues. And I ran into a physical therapist that did not – I knew what was wrong with my shoulders. I knew how to treat it. I explained how I how I need this this needed to be treated based on the what I had in the Department of Defense uh, medical you know right in, in the service and uh, it went back to square one and it, it was a bad experience so I, I walked away from the VA for three or four years and then uh, I got into the connected care program where you can find a local one out in town if you're over fifty miles from a VA medical facility you can actually go to a you know an approved uh, doctor out out in your local area. Well, that's good to know. So I live nowhere yeah, near. Uh, well, 
I don't think I live St. Louis. I don't think I live near many yeah. options that way. <laughs> yeah. So if you're over 50 miles, that's, that's part of the new mission act is you can find a community care provider in your area that the VA will then pay for. That's amazing. That is amazing. And that's the same, that's the same new information um, like that where guys are like, Oh, the VA is, you know, don't go to the VA, you know, or, or you can't get this. You can't get that. I'm like, you know what? no, People are making changes to help people now. You have to relook at what's out there and you find out things that they've changed and fixed. Yeah. And people are still delivering the old message. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, the, the, like you said, the VA is over 300,000 people. Uh, you know, and it's amazing how one person can change your, your an opinion on those 300,000 people or that 300,000 person organization. Just it, right. could, it, it just takes one person. So. Um, I, so I, after, after about three years, I finally, I finally went back and, and actually was able to help through the connected care. So, and then this podcast, uh, I do what's called benefits breakdowns every on the fives and zeros. I look, I go internal into the VA. I go find a program or an office and, and I shake them and I go, what do you do? How do you help veterans? How are they eligible for your services? Just to, cause this, this podcast is part of my journey too, to try to figure out what the VA is. Cause you're right. It's huge. And there's so many services, so many different things that, that, a lot of us as veterans don't know. So that's that's one of the whole reasons for this podcast. Right. And there's so much attached to it. If you don't know what's available to you, go research yeah. it and find out, right? Yep. And then when you go to that office and you bump into a human being, right, and they're having a bad day, don't trash the entire office and the entire VA because that human being had a bad day and spoke to you poorly. Yeah. Because you don't know that person, right? So one bad incident, I tell people, look. Give them four or five tries. You might run into four or five angry people in a day. You know, it's especially healthcare when you're dealing with people who need help and they're not in necessarily good moods. So you deal with them all day. And now you might not be in a good mood. Somebody comes in and you're, you don't speak kindly to them. And they're like, I hate the VA. I hate that office. It's like you had a bad experience with that one person who had a bad day, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do appreciate the perspective, Tom. I really do. So your journey in your journey with uh, with dealing with PTS, did it was that the spark of the All Secure Foundation for you and Jen? Absolutely. I mean, Jen, if you reading my book and you read into it, you'll know Jen's the hero of that book. Yeah. And then if you look into the foundation, and I tell everybody, you know, I got the pretty face. I'm the billboard guy. I'm, I'm beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so handsome. All right, that was just that. That's not true either. But no. what is true is, is she's the brains, and she stood it up. She did the work. She did the research while I was out still training and making money so we could eat. Yeah, and uh, she created a foundation where you know she has a job now. I have a job now. We bring in people to help. We help. We help couples all the time. We help people every day on the phone. Um, from nothing. And it was a lot of work, a lot of struggle and a lot of, you know, doors closed in your face and oh, by the way, you need money and we didn't have money. So real quick, what's the, what's the, what's the foundation's mission? The foundation's mission is to help warrior couples heal from, from everything that is caused by disconnection and war. Gotcha. You know, you want to help you reconnect at home. We want to help you reconnect with the families. We want to help you get down on the floor and talk to your children again and help you get back to living your best possible life and feeling good about it. Yeah. Um, we started off, Hey, can you call so-and-so would call so-and-so would get chewed out. <laughs> like, okay, we don't do that anymore. If somebody wants help. They'll call us. So we're just available. And we've struggled with, are we healers? Are we this? Are we that? We don't know enough is, you know, we're a lighthouse. We're the beacon and we'll throw you some tools. We'll teach you how to use them, but you yourself have to do the work. Yeah. Everybody has to do the work. 
what are some things that you guys teach, do? Um, what are some, is there a success story that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. We, so we started out as the resource library. When we started launching programs, we launched a special operation warrior couple retreat workshop. Okay. Um, and so basically we have a trauma therapist. Uh, she also is, um, an expert in addiction and does phenomenal work with married couples. Um, people joke and call her the magic unicorn because we have had the toughest pipe hitters call her and they call us back and say, I don't know what or how that just happened, but <laughs> I was she's good. I was bawling. You, you know, the stuff she's teaching me is working. Yeah. So we're introducing um, to both to the couple because we know we can't just heal the warrior because the wife um, or the spouse very possibly has secondary PTS as well. So if we're just healing the warrior and we send them back into a home where there's still trauma, there's still resentment, there's still disconnection, guess what? It's not going to end very well for either still, even though the warrior is getting help, even though the warrior is, is changing behavior, you have to change the foundation. You have to rebuild it. So they're great retreats. We do fun things, um, activities. It's not a PowerPoint presentation, but you are going to learn the tools. You're going to practice the tools. Um, and then you're going to get to get outside with a group and, and have that tribe mentality and connection as well. So it's a pretty powerful experience. The, um, before COVID we had all, uh, all of our retreats were booked within 30 minutes. Wow. So we, um, those are pretty busy. We also, Tom and I go around and we speak at different bases and post about, uh, PTS resiliency. So we go and we talk to the guys and gals kind of helping them understand what could be coming down the road. And then we speak to the FRG as well. So we're always making sure that we're including the families and we have a ton of successful stories. I think probably one of my favorite is, um, someone that had come to our retreat. She's a soldier. He's a soldier. And, uh, she was so worried about not fitting in, not fitting in with the wives, not fitting in with the guys, mm. you know, she was special operations, um, attached, right. I always use the wrong word. I want to make sure I'm using the right word, but she had deployed. She had served in a combat role. She had watched best friends die. Yeah. She had sexual assault and trauma, uh, by a former wow. ranger. So she had been through so much trauma, um, and was suffering as well. Yeah. Her husband's an active duty ranger and she just came into this event so guarded. Um, by the end of it, she pulled me aside and said, this just changed my entire life in four days. And I came in here kind of not understanding what would happen. Um, and I've learned more about myself and my trauma in these four days than the last three years that I've gone to therapy and research. Wow. And it's just getting eyeball to eyeball with people and helping them understand the biological effects of, of war, of trauma. And it's something that our warriors and their spouses don't understand is it's a natural biological response. Yeah. Instead of this, I can't will it away. I can't shove it under the rug anymore. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's, hey, this is what's going on. This is how to fix it. And that's all people want is a roadmap. And like Tom said, we can't, we can't row for you to shore. Uh, we'll give you the paddles though. Now, what year did you guys start all this? Uh, well, I started research in 16. 
we became an official 501c3 in 17. Got you. Now it's about three years. Um, now you got some endorsements already. Uh, how did Jack Osborne, Tony Larusa, and others hear about the foundation? I saw that video that was on your website. Yeah, that's a mix of friends of ours. Um, Very good. Friend of ours, Brad Thomas. Uh, he does Silence and Light. He's doing the same thing through music to help people. Um, he yeah. was he's friends with Jack Osborne and Max Martini and, and some other guys on there as well. Yeah, and Tony Larusa and some other folks that are just or friends St. Louis. Like St. So Louis, anyone so. in St. Louis or around St. Louis, Tony mm-hmm. Larusa, they're like, yep. Lucky <laughs> enough to be. Yeah, we were lucky enough to be introduced to people like Johnny Morris from Bass Pro Shops, and yeah. And, and we t- do our retreats there, and uh, and we got we did our one retreat there, and we got a call. <laughs> yeah, getting ready to go home from the retreat. We got a call from their office and said, "Would you like to stay for a Dirk Bentley concert?" And, and you know, free Dirk Bentley concert, and it was tomorrow, uh, the next day. And we're like, "Sure, we'll pay for your cabin." And uh, my wife's like, "Who's?" Where is Dirks Bentley? What's that? That's a who. <laughs> That's a who. It's honey. not your favorite, but it's country music and it's a concert. You guys, <laughs> you guys get Dirks Bentley. I had a White Snake once in Washington State. Got there you I, go. I wouldn't know White Snake. I would have been like, "Here we go again on my own." All right. I see go. Tawny. I see Tawny crawling across the hood of a car when you say that, right? Yeah, I bet you do. To go to a go to a, a casino in Washington State, and you might get free tickets at some point. That's what happened to us. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> that's how we I mean, that that's how we met Johnny Morris was you know Johnny Morris gets on stage and we met him right before we went on stage to do the Pledge of Allegiance at the Dirk Bentley concert oh wow and he shakes our hand talks to Jen and, and hears a little bit about our foundation what we're doing and he goes on stage and introduces us and then gives us you know $100,000 right there oh my gosh and uh, yeah. it, we, we drive home it's a four hour drive from Big Cedar to our house and we get a call that night Hey, can we send you a plane? Can you do the Pledge of Allegiance down in Florida for the Bahamas, you know, for their hurricane effort down there? Uh, yeah. So they send a private jet and pick us up. Let, fly me, back. My, let me check my schedule. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was sitting there going, well, we got kids. And my wife's smacking me. Shut up. You don't say no. I'm like, well, we got kids. I don't know. I'm be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> trying to be a good, good co-parent here. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, you don't say no to that. They'll eat cereal. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we go down there and do that. And so being friends with, you know, guys like that, that introduce you to other people that believe in what you're doing. Yeah. Um, goes a long way. Yeah. Goes a long way. Yeah. Tony Lurusa called the other day. I had a question for him. He's like, let me call you in five minutes. And I hear noise in the background. I'm like, are you, are you at the game? He's like, yeah, I'm at the A's dugout, but somebody just hit a home run. So that's a good time to call. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> you don't need to call me in the middle of a major league game. Yeah. Um, it's not that important. <laughs> we, we can talk in a minute. He's like, eh, it's okay. I mean, he's just so supportive of the military. He's so supportive of the troops. He loves anything, anything these guys can do. They've just been so easy to get a hold of, generous, kind, um, and supportive. So we're grateful for people who understand that the freedoms that they have come from the place that they come from, their soldiers and their families. It's good to have a strong network like that. That's awesome to hear. Um, Okay. Co-CEOs. Now, I'm sure with something like this, decisions have to be made. How do you do it together? And how do you you mitigate those, and I'm sure, multiple pain points? 
together as a team. <laughs> we have a few. Exactly like marriage. <laughs> I say, yes, dear. <laughs> Outstanding. I'll leave it at that. I mean, right. Oh, my oh, goodness. Go, go ahead. She's creative. Um, she's creative. She likes to new ideas and start new things and get things going. Yeah. Me, I'm terrified of that. I like to get things going right away and stick with it and get it going well. So instead of getting dug in in one place and stay in there and losing traction, you know, we get dug in. And then when it, when it starts to slip, she comes up with other ideas of how to keep it going. And I fight it. I struggle it. No, we can't keep changing. And she's like, we're not changing. We're keeping up. So it not works out. Dying. The yeah. two different styles that we have um, has really worked out. We kind of complete each other with that. So it's made it well. She makes most of the decisions, unless it's something military she doesn't understand, and, or there's that. I mean, we make them together. I don't but, like contracting. Yeah. <laughs> neither military do I. Contracting. Ne- ne- neither do I. My wife. My wife's a contracts analyst, and I'm glad. I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I have her in my life. I, yes. I'm like I'm like Tom. I'm like Tom. I'm the dreamer. She builds the ladder. You know, it's great yeah. to have that support network there. Yes. Um, okay. Number one piece of advice for veterans who want to give back and start something to do and want to start something to, to give back. Please do so first and foremost, all hands on deck. Um, there's a lot of help that needs to be had out here and we partner with a ton of nonprofits and, um, we're always available to kind of walk through ours, our contact form, hit us up and, and we're happy to get on the phone. In fact, we just talked to a law enforcement officer who's starting programs similar to ours, but in his community. So we walked him through that process as well. But I would say you have a passion and you have already committed to a life of service. And just because you're out of service doesn't mean that this country doesn't need warriors, you know, even if it's not in the sense of a lot of guys get out and, and they might go and volunteer at their church or they go and they start a different kind of program supporting their passion. Yeah. Whatever your passion is, whatever you love to do, bring that into your community and the rewards will be tenfold. I mean, I know for Tom, this foundation has helped him heal. Helping others heal has been the single greatest mode of healing for him. That's what we tell everybody um, all the time. People, and it's funny you start a foundation. Next thing you know, you're an expert on starting foundations. People, yeah, like I don't know how we got here. We <laughs> we were lucky to be this far, you know. So yeah, yeah. we'll help you with what we have. But you know what? Like she said, find your passion and then execute it. You've already have the training. The guys, tell you, I don't have the training. You know how to plan, right? You know how to plan and lay it out. Where do you want to be? What's the timeline? Be realistic, and then backward plan from there. And how you're going to get there? Yeah, and break it down into little chunks. You can Google anything. Uh, we didn't know anything. And we started Googling and Googling and found out how to do this, how to do that. It's not easy. So it weeds out those whose whose passion is waning a little bit. Sure. But you got to really want it. And then and then find the help. That's what we did. We found a lawyer that donated time. We found people that believed in what we believed in as well and contributed their skills to help us along the way. I, I just Googled how to um, and YouTubed. YouTube's great. Yeah. YouTube had a, had a, uh, build built in bookshelves. We'll see about my passion here in, a, in about a week or two right. if it wanes or not, but <laughs> <laughs> that's it, Google. Google's your friend. Um, yes, it is. Tom, what's one thing in service in service that you learned that you carry with you today? To hang on to your empathy and compassion. Hmm. That's what I lost in the service. 
but that's what I was trained to be. So when I found it, I realized that you can be a better person. You can still be highly trained. You can still take lives if you have to. You can still do the jobs that you have to do and maintain your humanity, compassion, and empathy. Because when I lost it, it, it changed my entire life. And when I found it back, it brought my life back. And everybody I talked to, no matter how long you talk to them, it comes down to empathy and compassion, whether it's for yourself or others. That's a very interesting perspective. Uh, something that you, you, I've never had anybody answer that question about something that they lost in service that they eventually relearned and relearned and what, and what, it, and what it meant. That's interesting. Very good. Very good. Um, Tom, Jen, is there a veteran nonprofit or an individual who you've worked with or you've had experience with whom you'd like to mention? I'd love we, to give a shout out to Teddy Lanier. Teddy Lanier and Warrior's Heart. Um, sadly, we send a lot of people their way. And, and Teddy was one of our first that we sent that way. Hmm. And years ago, he went, uh, uh, he was on everything. You name it, he was on it or drinking it, shooting it, smoking it. Right. Wow. We didn't know. And we were good friends and we did not know. Now we knew we partied together, but we had no idea the level. And when he called one day shaking and crying and said, I can't finish my job. I'm on the range trying to teach how to shoot. And I can't, um, we didn't have any money. We called out, got some help from uh, a friend who told me the day before, if you ever need anything, right. Just call next day, two days later, I think I was calling him and got all the money we needed to send um, Teddy to Warrior's Heart. And years later, um, Last he, he's, he's going to be, <laughs> he's going to be high up. He's going to work his way up in Warrior's yeah. Heart. He is going, he's doing wonderful things. He's back at his job training. Um, what does, what, 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 what does Warrior Heart do? What is it? Warrior's Heart is an addiction and PTSD. So they're like a mixture. They're a, they're a brick and mortar building down in um, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I think they're looking to start more locations as well, but they do first responders as well as veterans with PTSD and addiction. Gotcha. So you'll go down there and you can either cover it with insurance or they have funds and grants that help you. But yeah, they treat um, addiction and PTSD together. Very good. Um, Tom, Jen, um, is there anything else that I may have missed or that you, is there something important that you think that, is important to share to anybody that's listening to this. Uh, I like to tell everybody that, um, you know, number one, the greatest fair is a fair to try. So if you're sitting there waiting and wondering, there's not a soul on this earth that doesn't fail. And it's what you do with it. When you fail, get back up, keep going. That's how you succeed. But I want those people to reach out. It's okay. I don't know how many times I have to say it. It's okay. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of a leadership. It's a sign of a true professional who realizes they need something more. We all don't have all the answers, so we can't, we can't act like it. So reach out, find the person who has those answers, reach out to us, reach out to somebody. We're not trying to, to bring all the veterans to us, right? This is, we just want those people that are in need to go somewhere and get the help wherever that is, that's comfortable, but to open up and share and sure, to realize they're not alone in the fight. Nobody's alone. Everybody tells us, uh, I'm embarrassed. I don't, I'm the only one. I'm like, really? You just joined a larger family because the rest of us feel that way too.
Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger, I still had the addictions, but we didn't talk about that. Came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go, go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people, because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I want to thank Tom and Jen for coming on and sharing their story. You can find more information about Tom and Jen at allsecurefoundation.org forward slash our hyphen story. Our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week comes by the way of our Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our social media team highlights a veteran on our social media platforms and on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate your own Veteran of the Day by sending some photos and a short write-up and an email to newmedia at va.gov. Delta Force was activated on November 19, 1977, and Herman Adams was one of the unit's first members. The Army drafted Adams on October 4, 1961. In 1964, the Army selected Adams as a Green Beret. Adams also commanded the Alpha Company 82nd Signal Battalion in 1974. In 77, Adams became one of the original members of Delta Force. He served under Colonel Charlie Beckwith, the unit's creator and commander. During this assignment, Adams completed missions involving counterterrorism, hostage rescue, and special reconnaissance. In 1980, Adams took part in Operation Eagle Claw during the Iran hostage crisis. Adams retired from the Army in 1983 after more than 21 years in service. He then took a job with Motorola's Government Electronics Division as a project manager. In this position, Adams used his military experience with communications and electronics to support U.S. Army Special Operations for another 18 years. After his retirement, Adams spent his days traveling in his RV and watching NASCAR. He also enjoyed playing golf and helping his children with home remodeling projects. Unfortunately, Adams passed away on August 3rd, 2017, at age 78, after battling leukemia. Army veteran Herman L. Adams. We honor his service. Ready. Hey. Five. Ready. Hey. Five. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov. And follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, Pinterest, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care.